Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into Table Work. My name is Amber Bradshaw, and I am a new play dramaturg, arts administrator, and educator. On this podcast, I chat with theater makers about the art of new play dramaturgy. Our mission is to demystify the process of creation and collaboration, explore ways to better our field, share tools to diversify and improve the work, and record what we discover. This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as the managing artistic director. For more about Working Title Playwrights and me, check out www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. Still, do also need to get out and be with people and experience them. Yes, um, there's so much richness there, and so much frailty and beauty, and all of the. You know, we want to focus on the ugly and the disconnect. And when you get out there, you realize there's really much more of the opposite of that. I'd like to start by introducing y'all to our guest today, Daryl Lisa Fazio. Thank you so much for being here, Daryl. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So Daryl is a playwright, actor, and graphic designer for theater based in Atlanta. Her plays and musicals have been produced off-Broadway, internationally, and in regional theaters from Southwest Florida to Bangor, Maine. She's developed work in professional theaters around Atlanta, as well as the Barter Theater, Florida Rep, and the Contemporary American Theater Festival. Daryl recently self-produced and released her novel manuscript as a serial podcast called Pearl River Remains, and also just finished the first draft of a new play called Calm Down, which she intends to self-produce in non-traditional spaces. She studied acting at Northwestern University and has an MFA in graphic design from the University of Memphis. For more about Daryl, check out DarylsPlays.com or NPX, also known as the New Play Exchange. So, Daryl, you and I met in 2010, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And I have to say, you will always have a special place in my heart because you are the first playwright I worked with one-on-one as a dramaturg. <laughs> I really consider you my first dramaturg, dramaturgical experience as a playwright, I guess. So we're, we're, we're equal. <laughs> well, that's, that's a great honor. It I'm is. glad you're still writing. <laughs> and you're still dramaturg, so we must have done something right. I guess you did. Ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'd say you taught me a lot about establishing relationship because I remember you asking me just a bunch of questions, you know. Uh, you were just so eager to learn who I was and what I was into and how I do dramaturgy. And... Um, I really hope that every playwright would be as inquisitive about dramaturgs and collaborators um, because, you know, we should choose our work wisely. Right. And we should choose the collaborators that we work with wisely as well. Yeah, I I think it's a relationship. Um, It's a relationship with the play. It's a relationship with the other person. And you want to make sure. I mean, especially if you're writing about sensitive topics or things that are regionally specific, you want to know if this other person is going to get it. Like, right. <laughs> are we going to, you know, really like jive together with this play and this message and these characters and where it is? Have you had some experiences in this part of the country or with these kinds of people? Um, are you a feminist? Are you, you know, um, I think... You know, 
it's so funny. You remember me asking a lot of questions and I, I guess I, you know, I like to say whenever I meet new people, I always have lots of questions because I'm just interested in people and who they are and where they come from. But I think unconsciously, I, maybe I was interviewing you a little bit um, because I didn't know what I was getting into. Like, what is this? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. What's a dramaturg? <laughs> <laughs> um, and similarly, you know, you, every dramaturg I work with, helps me, you know, you help me on that project sort of hone in on my voice Mm -hmm. and, you know, force me to make stronger choices. And out of those stronger choices, you know, there's more potential (laughs) for failure, but also more potential for works that are life altering, both for the writer and for the people experiencing them. You know, they just become so much more daring and they become so much more like an extension of the playwright's curiosity and the playwright's view of the world. And I think dramaturgs sort of give you, when there's that good relationship, they're like, I am here to support you in these discoveries, not to smack you down every time you start to do something that's a little bit you know, off the beaten path or maybe off the track you thought you were on. I'm here to say, Hey, yeah, there's something there. Mm -hmm. And that's scary, isn't it? But I'm here to support you. Um, and I'm going to make sure, you know, if you fall down that I can pick you up. Um, and that gives dramaturgs who've been that for me in the room have, um, really helped me become a better writer, a more confident writer. And then you really helped me find like the danger of the play and really create this, this constant sense of things being on the precipice, which it had really lacked. And that's something I've taken, you know, into like every play I've written since then, I think, mm-hmm. um, whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, and, you know, we always say safety, you know, that's not where, where great art gets made, but you need a little safety. Yeah. <laughs> you got to start there so you, you can get risky. Have, you have to have drum turks hold. I always think of like, the metaphor for me, for some reason, has become like the dramaturg's hand, and then the playwright is a little fluffy baby chicken, oh. and the dramaturg is petting the little chicken on the head, and then the chicken gets bigger and bigger until it can kind of fly. <laughs> um, whereas the director might be sort of smacking the, um, the the chicken down a little bit, but the dramaturg's there to be like, "Hey, it's all right." Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) You're going to grow into a hen one of these days and you're going to leave all these people in the dust. (laughs) Yes. Much of, much of our work is, is supporting whatever the playwright is going through and letting them know that, that we're here. They don't have to do it alone. right? Right. It's not just the play. It's the person. Yeah. Yeah. You are also an actor and performer, right? Right. And you perform in a lot of your own work. Um, and I love this about, about you. And I think it, it's a, it's an important part of your artistic, artistic identity. Um, how do you feel that the playwright and the actor converge for you? Um, besides the obvious, you know, when you're writing the play and you're in it, but what does that do for you from a process perspective? Yeah. Um, I'm always trying to make choices that give clear beats, clear pileups, stage directions that really get inside the head of the characters and have a voice that is just as distinctive as the characters themselves. 
to help the actors, because I know what it feels like to read those words on a page, just drop in um, and to have all the clues be there on the page mm-hmm. as far as how do I get from point A to point B um, or what, what the director is always asking. What do you want as a character? Right? What's your objective? So writing from character first, I'm sure that comes from being an actor. And if yeah. the character is there first and the things that they do all are informed by all those weird juxtapositions and opposites that are sort of simmering inside of us at all times, then that's where things get really juicy and complicated and messy. Um, yet they still make sense. So, you know, it's all human nature. I'm fascinated by human nature. I would say, I, I think actors and playwrights are in some ways best served by being students of life and not students of other plays and other actors work. Mm. Um, watch the real life, watch the real people, um, see oh, who they are, see what that. they do. Influence is necessary and important and impossible to avoid. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, we do need some awareness of how things are going in the real world with theater, because you can envision something, a creative way to solve a problem that's going to cost $20 million. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> for sure. Or let, just let me, somebody else do with this. Cause um, right. they may have done it better. Let's, let's not be the first. Yeah. Agreed. I, I mean, it's, it's, and, and when I was a teacher, I used to teach graphic design to college kids. Um, I, I, always saw how parameters could help them see solutions that wouldn't have been readily available if they just had, you know, a wide open space Mm. and zero parameters. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, okay, well, this is going to push me in a direction that I wouldn't have been pushed otherwise. So sometimes what we consider limitations of the theater or a budget or space can also open up these doors, these wonderful solutions that never would have happened had you not known that, you know, the theater only seats 35 people and there's a train that goes by every 20 minutes and, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever that is, it seems impossible to overcome. And then the next thing, you know, you've worked the train into the play and, um, exactly. you know, you've decided to plant the actors within the audience because there's not enough space and it becomes this wonderful living, breathing thing. So, I, you know, all of those things are necessary, but I am a big believer in, being yes an observer a participator is that a word yeah i think a participant a participant (laughs) i i you know i just use words for a living it's no big deal that i I made up a word just now um shakespeare made up words yeah definitely um but but i think and, and that's something i'm thinking a lot about these days because we've all sort of you know become hobbits in our little hobbit holes from COVID <laughs> yes. and people, even you said this to me, you're like, I realize I'm actually not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. I, <laughs> I like being at home by myself. A lot of people have realized that. Now I already knew that. And I was right. already practicing that lifestyle. You and many playwrights. Um, before, yes. um, so it can become difficult to get out into the people. Yes. And I can. and I can. see them, and so sometimes I, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, you're watching too many documentaries, or you're watching too many, um, mm. and you know, interviews on YouTube with real people. That's fine, but you still do also need to get out and be with people and experience them. Yes, um, there's so much richness there, and so much 
frailty and beauty and all of the, you know, we want to focus on the ugly and the disconnect. And when you get out there, you realize there's really much more of the opposite of that. I know. Right. Yeah. I think sometimes I'm like, well, I can be with people and not have to talk to them. <laughs> I can go to yoga class. I can go to dance class. I can yes. go see a play. Yes. I can, and I can do all those things alone, That's you true. know, and, and I can be with people and experience their energy. And, yes. and that is just as important for me. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think it's being an introvert means you have to get a little bit creative about how you do that. But I think it's possible, you know? Um, and I definitely did discover that during the pandemic, um, and was very grateful for it because I think, I now understand myself better so that I can set better boundaries for myself, you know? Yes. Which I think as artists, we really need to know what we need in a process so that we can let people know. Sometimes the system just needs to be paused, right? Like the thing you've created needs to be paused. so You can take a break and return to it. That's why I love those developmental workshops that are the day on day off. Mm, Yeah. Like you do with the Wilson because I've been in them also where it's just five straight days Mm. and the rewrites that I have to do have to happen like late at night and then first thing in the morning. And then you show up to rehearsal and you're completely wasted and spent. Yeah. Um, but still needing to do more work. Um, and that's when also your dramaturg becomes your ears. Um, when like you maybe have lost the power to listen or receive anything else, another effing word from anyone. So true. And, you know, the Ethel Wilson lab is it's, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right? So the writer gets to work Tuesday, Thursday without rehearsal. And that was based on responses from playwrights, right? So we set it up that way. And often by Sunday, when we do the reading and we have moderated talk back at the end, you know, sometimes all we need to hear are good things by then, right? Because the whole week, the whole week, the the team has been sharing with the playwright and the playwright has been revising. And so it it does end up sometimes that all we need are, are things that resonate and questions. Um, and we leave out the distractions and the confusions, right? Um, which is of course, the playwright knows what they are anyway. Exactly. Just sitting and getting to watch it from start to finish. You're like, Oh damn. (laughs) <laughs> I broke this play. I broke this play worse. Like in this week, it was necessary and it's going to get me to this awesome place in the next draft. But right now this is bad or this is painful or this, I, you know, took this off in a direction um, mm-hmm. that was not where it needed to head. Um, yeah. And then you don't need a one damn person telling you <laughs> that talk back what it is you need to, um, Yes, you know, it's that tone people get. Yeah, it's just like, no, the glaze, I'm glazed (laughs) over. I don't, my ears are, they are not capable of hearing any longer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah, that comes with a lot of time and experience in those processes, understanding yourself and knowing when you need to say to someone who's, you know, guiding that, that, workshop. Mm-hmm. This is what I need or don't need. Mm-hmm. And it's okay yeah, to say that. Absolutely. It's okay to say, I don't need any negativity right now. Yeah. I can't handle it anymore. 
Exactly. <laughs> and I used to think, oh, well, if I can't handle it, then I'm not up to the challenge. You know, I need to just go find something else to do. And it's just not true. It's no. just not true. I mean, we did a lab recently where we didn't have a talk back. And it's probably been a while since we did oh. that. But, you know, I think that if if the playwright feels like they don't they don't want it or don't need it, then I think that it's important to trust the playwright's intuition. You yeah, know? Um, that's great. Well, because part of what we are doing as a, as an incubator and service organization is encouraging playwrights to trust their intuition. So mm-hmm. if we don't trust them, then how can they trust themselves? Um, Just giving them the options and a voice to say yes mm-hmm. or no, I think is really important. Yeah. And even like if they, they can be like, oh, no, let's do it. You know, just having that, having you ask them and giving them the choice not to have the talk back maybe is enough, you know, to say, no, I think I can, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I want to do it. But, but thank you for giving me an out. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I also just want to note, I know a lot of people don't even do talkbacks because they can be a bit of a disaster. And I think that talkbacks need experienced moderators rules of engagement and a discussion with the playwright beforehand about mo- what is needed. Thousand percent. Without those things, no, there should not be a talk back. Yes. Right? I've had some horrible, horrible, horrible ones where nothing was accomplished. Yeah. And, um, and the audience, any of the building blocks put in place right. for any of those. Right. Um, and so a lot of the time I, I like to say, it's really not the talk back. It's the way the talk back is handled and yeah. structured. Um, and that if we can be cognizant of the mission, then we can probably do a lot better overall with yeah. talkbacks. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of the, a uh, few of the mini projects you have going on. So you are working on a show called Calm Down about women in the healthcare system, patients and doctors, um, that is envisioned as a stage piece with an accompanying podcast, which sounds really cool. Tell me about that. Um, I've gotten really interested in podcasts over the past year. Um, I'm sure a lot of writers of various types of material have because of COVID. And if you work in the live entertainment sector, um, and you've seen just one too many zoom play readings, um, (laughs) you think about, well, what is there that I can create for this medium, this digital medium? that's intended to be experienced that way and not something that's meant to be a live piece that then we try to shoehorn into mm-hmm. these little boxes, little Brady Bunch boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started to love storytelling through audio um, and how it allows so much imagination on the part of a listener, how it's so intimate because your voice is so close to the ear. Um, so I, th- I thought, you know, is there any kind of story that can be told on the stage that then can continue to evolve in a podcast form. And I'm thinking specifically of subject matter that is healing or informative, educational. Um, There is a social justice component. You know, there's all kinds of sort of little pools of wonderfulness Mm. that you could dive into um, because podcasts have such a reach. And maybe the person saw the stage Play, but maybe they didn't really it's kind of more that's more there for me and the other actors because we want to have that 
relationship with an audience. Mm. And then, oh, we don't have to stop telling the story just because the theatrical run is over or we're out of money. Mm-hmm. We can keep telling it. Right. And we're going to reach different people that way. Um, this, well, so I had this friend, I mean, isn't this how a lot of projects get started? This is my favorite kind of project. Most things I I hatch by myself (laughs) because as we've already discussed, I'm by myself a lot at home, (laughs) but some of my favorite projects are ones that were hatched just by being like with someone, another artist that you just get like really jazzed. Yeah by their energy and you both have lots of ideas when you're together and you're both really passionate about what is it frustrates you or what you want to see changed. And so I had, a, I had a, a run in like this with a, an actor and producer um, who recently moved kind of to the region who had been much farther away. And I left and I had like a three hour drive home and I was like, Oh, God, I have to create something for us to do together. I'm so like on fire. And what is it going to be? And um, the answer was right in front of me. In this case, it wasn't going to be something I was going to research for two years. Um, I was going through, I've been going through a very lengthy, years long process of trying to get a diagnosis for health problem I've been having and being told numerous times I was anxious or I was stressed or, you know, all those things women get told when they can't find something on a test. But then I was also observing like these female doctors I would go see and like their frustration Mm -hmm. with like being called by their first name by patients and other doctors instead of being called Dr. Blank. Um, Really? Their clear stress with the system, their clear stress over Mm -hmm. how little time they could spend with the patient to where they just became like these sort of robots. Mm -hmm. But I knew under there was a person still. They just didn't have the bandwidth for it. And I thought, wow, this system is broken on so many levels. I mean, it's broken on such a human level. Everybody wants to focus on insurance and Medicare and, um, you know, the greed of the pharmaceutical companies. But like, there's also this very human sort of intimate drama being told constantly in the push pull of patients and doctors. And um, yeah, so I really wanted to tell a story about what women go through not being believed Mm -hmm. um, as patients Mm -hmm. and, um, and also tell a story about what women doctors go through. And then I got really interested. I got one day I was watching something on YouTube and it led me down this totally unintentional rabbit hole about women with autism Mm -hmm. and the fact that many, many women will make it into their 60s, 70s, 80s before they realize they're autistic, they've been autistic their whole life and they've struggled with making friends or having relationships or having burnout because, you know, they're so empathetic and so much, you know, absorbing emotion Mm -hmm. um, and never understanding why they seem, they felt like an alien on earth. And that led me down this path of there's actually all of these healthcare professionals who are autistic. Mm. And they're starting to develop these organizations to help autistic doctors be supported really? in their environment. And you can see how someone with some characteristics of autism might make a wonderful doctor because there's this incredible focus and interest in solving difficult problems in creative ways. Their minds don't necessarily work in a linear fashion. And so mm-hmm. you have patients with difficult to diagnose problems and they're going to come at it in a totally different way. Um, so often the system isn't going to support that though. Right. Of course. Um, so 
Wow. This play ended up becoming about, at first I was going to write this outrageous comedy. It was going to be, there were going to be zombies. <laughs> um, it was going to ultimately be like this like governmental plot to try to like have all the women who couldn't birth babies labeled anxious and like shuttled off to institutions. <laughs> um, and I realized, why are you adding all of this stuff on here? The story is plenty interesting without zombies. and. Um, it just sort of emerged. It's a, it's a two character drama, comedy drama, but we both play multiple doctors. So you have like the core relationship of this doc, autistic doctor trying to help this woman who can't get a diagnosis. But then that doctor also gets to play a patient at one point, And we both get to play male doctors and other scenes or therapists mm. or mm. Um, doctors functioning in other capacities, patients functioning in other capacities. So um, I have a lot to say to people that I hope will be healing and cathartic mm. if they feel they have been disbelieved and abandoned by healthcare mm. <laughs> and also want to talk about some difficult to diagnose things that people might not even realize they have and be like, oh my God, that's what I have. Yeah, I need to go talk to my doctor right now because this is it. No one's ever been able to label it. As somebody who um, has has been through my own medical journey, mm. discovering my diagnosis um, and uh, seeing these doctors struggle with the system, and having to find a, a an actually a woman doctor who studied women and focused on women mm. to solve that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, our bodies are different, yo. Uh, just a little. And you know what else? I also found a lot of healing in holistic modalities and meditation. And, and in my case, I did finally get a diagnosis, but it was, you know, nine neurologists. Wow. Over five years. I think mine was, there were around the same, mm. around the same. Yeah, it's surprising. Yeah. shockingly routine that's, for that's that routine isn't it okay. and you have to yeah. you know after a certain number of times that you've been told these things about yourself that don't feel true right it's very hard to keep going back but that's where all my love of research came in i just started essentially training myself like a doctor i mean i joined facebook groups so i right. could see sort of anecdotal evidence but then i also just read a lot of scientific papers and so where do i fit where, where are the where are the pieces sure that fit here and then when you figure it out then you put together a case, like you're preparing for a damn c- criminal trial and you go to the doctor <laughs> with all your evidence. Yes. Um, yes. And there you go. Exactly. Um, sometimes it en- has a happy ending. Well, strange to wish for a happy ending to be that you have a, a chronic autoimmune disease. But, you know, when you have a name for it and there are some treatments you can get access to when you're not just quote unquote hysterical woman exactly number fifty thousand two hundred and nine. Right. Yeah, it's a very um empowering feeling. I'm really glad you're writing that. I think uh it needs to happen. We really need to be talking about these experiences. Yeah. So you can hear how like even just the conversation you and I have had about like our personal attempts to get to the bottom of what's going on with us that's a podcast exactly but 
I might end up writing something that's scripted and I could make all these different scenarios based on all these incredible stories I've seen people yeah. play out in these Facebook groups of these sort of relatively rare illnesses that right. are being ignored or stigmatized. Um, mm. Things that you just wouldn't believe. Um, I would, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, but I've been yeah. there. But, <laughs> but it's only because I've been there. Right. I, I would not have believed it otherwise. Um, it was, I think one of the hardest parts about those journeys is being sick while realizing yes. that that is what's happening. Right. Um, and that, that is really hard. Um, and I have a family member who is in the, the field, you know, so, uh, as a nurse, mm-hmm. so it's, it's been helpful to have that family member in my life yeah. to, to help me see their side too, obviously. Right. Cause we're yes. all human, you know, so you want to demonize the other side. That's not it. It's the system. It's, that's the problem. Yes. You know, everyone's a cog in that system. And I often feel like that about the American theater, right? It's a system and we're cogs in it and we have to reroute and rebuild the system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that we can the, do it differently. Yeah. Some of the stuff you, you mentioned, you want to talk about, I have some, I have some very similar thoughts <laughs> on that, on that about the American theater. Yeah. The business of the American theater, right? The industry, of the American theater. Well, before we get into that, cause I'm going to ask you that question next. I also want to hear about this other project you're working on, um, a serialized fiction podcast called Elizabeth quick about a woman discovering her power as she survives alone in the aftermath of an extinction event. And you're going to be sound engineering and voicing this yourself. That's the plan. <laughs> um, yeah. And I have this, this woman I met through my agent. Well, my agent introduced me to a director she represents and she's done some, some podcast directing um, up in New York and she's like super excited about the project. So it's always helpful when you have like another person on board that's like, in your corner and it's kind of, <laughs> yes. yes, I'm, I'm waiting for that script. Um, let's get to work. Um, yeah, this was another one where, you know, Amber, I, I would love, I have a zillion ideas for scripted fiction podcasts. I could write with five to six to 20 actors that would be incredibly fun and interesting. I don't have the money to pay those people. Sure. And, you know, I've tried, I've dipped my toe into, you know, approaching producers who who do produce podcasts Mm -hmm. and they just weren't ready to pull the trigger on the one project that got close. It was a 10 episode piece and each episode was probably 15 to 20 minutes. I don't know if people will find this interesting. I mean, it was, I had no idea what the the cost was and that was going to be about 75 grand, which, you know, Hollywood money, that's like someone yeah, sneezes I and know. that comes That's out of someone's nose. Right. But, but yeah, if you're like a, a, a production company in Atlanta, Georgia, and you've mostly done nonfiction sort of true crime, which is you right. know, the bread and butter, that's a very scary thing to sort of start to think about going into that mm-hmm. fiction mode. Fiction hasn't found the same audience in podcasting mm-hmm. that um, nonfiction has yet. Interesting. I mean, I hope it will get there. So I just thought, well, I have things I want to do. I want to act still and I want to write and I want to tell stories through podcasting. How can I do that? And like I was saying earlier, this idea of how you're with a podcast, you can talk right into someone's ear and they put an earbud in and your voice is like right there. Yeah. I can tell you shit that 
be a lot harder to tell you on a stage where I have to talk very loudly and project my voice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the access is incredible. It's right? so, it's so cool how you feel like as a listener, like this person is just telling me this story. And we're yeah. like having this relationship right now. Um, so it's exciting as an actor. It's exciting as a writer and then figuring out how to solve the problem and tell the story without visuals. So the idea with this piece is just that she's, she's, it's the aftermath of something that's gone down. We don't know why yet. And we'll sort of find that out over the course of the story. Um, and she's finding her physical body and her capabilities as a powerful woman and whether she's going to sort of use her physical body to defend herself or whether she's just going to sort of stay away from any sort of confrontation. She's also an observer. And so she can talk to us about what she's seeing. And she's found this old tape recorder and someone's like old mixtapes. And that's how she's, and she's just sort of talking to herself, but she's recording it for quote unquote posterity. And that's how we get the story. And you can imagine like she's carrying it and she's talking and then, you know, she's walking and then something happens and she shuts it off really quickly and she comes back and she tells you, what is she telling you now? How has she changed? Is she suddenly out of breath? Mm -hmm. Does something bad just happened? Mm -hmm. What's she going to reveal about what just happened? Yeah. There's all kinds of really cool, juicy, you know, opportunities there for, for storytelling and for acting. And then the sound design, the soundscape, what yeah. we're hearing, what we're not hearing. Um, it's all just exciting. I love it. I love how you are exploring storytelling in just so many different mediums, right? I mean, uh, I would love to hear uh, how your your piece Pearl River Remains came to be what it is now, right? Where right. it started and, and what you moved it into. I think, um, I think it's really inspiring to hear what you're doing. Um, I know a lot of playwrights feel like they need to wait for someone else to produce their work. And I'm just going to say right now, don't wait for anybody, you know, like don't wait for anybody to do this for you. Like doing it for yourself is such an amazing way of learning about your process yourself and your work, making the work better. And also like having a lot of respect for people who are actually producing. Right. But like, it's just another way to learn. It's like, you're saying you sound so excited about this opportunity. And I hear you being excited about learning as an actor, how to do that kind of work, mm -hmm. you know, because it's going to be different than being on stage. And that's really exciting and figuring out how to tell a story in this other kind of medium where you only have sound, but that that as a parameter, it sounds really exciting for you. You know, I mean, your voice just got, you got passionate you got really into it. Just the, the idea of, of the, all of the opportunities to explore, you know, and I think that's where it's at <laughs> for me when it comes to process is as an artist, what makes you the most excited and ecstatic and how can you maintain that? You know, and I hear you saying my way is to figure out how to get my work out there in whatever way possible. And that right now that is me doing it for myself, you know, and I love this. I just want to support you. And I think it's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I, I guess, yeah, I just encourage people when you feel stuck. And I mean, I know a lot of us have felt stuck mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and then you start to realize, oh, I'm not stuck. This is a pause. This is a right. breath. Um, An opportunity. To right? reevaluate and to, to take the situation and sort of rotate it and look at it from another angle. And 
I've done plays where I had a hundred thousand dollar budget behind it. And, you know, it was beautiful. I've done some that were less beautiful. Um, I've felt what that was like. I've experienced the shortcomings of the professional theater as it stands right now. And the fact that I'm frustrated with the lack of audience diversity that we're reaching. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about age. I'm talking about race. I'm talking about class, Mm -hmm. class y'all. Shakespeare was for everybody. Yeah. People were like poor. Mm hmm. Um, at Shakespeare. And you when write it, a lot of working class and characters. And I do. I and write stories. working class characters. Mm-hmm. And the people who are those those working class people have every right to see themselves on stage. Right. Um, people who haven't gone to college have every right to get to yes. go to a play. A plumber gets to go to a play and write and see something, you know, that reveals the world to him in a way he'd never thought of before. Um, and I just, I don't know how that's going to happen in the current model. Mm-hmm. So in, in addition to the frustration of being an artist and having to have other people open doors for you. Right. And you just get tired of like coming up against that thing that stops you every time. Sure. Um, it's the, it's the audience as well. So podcasts reach a vast audience. People who can't leave their house can suddenly hear you. People all over the world can, can hear your work. Um, with Calm Down, with the play that I'm working on, I want to take that to like community centers or like someone's backyard and do it with a couple of chairs. Yeah. Um, and I want people to, to feel welcome who are from every walk of life. Um, and that's good for me and it's good for the world. Like it's, I, I think that there we're partners in this. I can't, I can't just be writing work because I need to see my stuff up on stage. That's mm-hmm. not enough for me anymore. I need work to be helpful to others in some way. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't mean to shy away from entertainment. Entertainment to me is not a dirty word. It's, inc- it, it's, it's necessary. Um, I think entertainment is always there alongside whatever it is that you're doing. I'm healing, mm-hmm. I'm educating, I'm informing, I'm yeah. changing minds, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. whatever I'm bringing together. There's a lot to be said for finding spaces for theater that is not a building called a theater. It doesn't right? feel stodgy to people. It doesn't exactly. feel like the doors close or there's like a moat around it with crocodiles. Exactly. Um, and it's a castle and I, you know, I can't get in. They're going to fire a cannon at me because I don't have the right education level. Or I don't know how to properly respond dress to play. Right or, or yeah, I won't be yeah, smart enough. Or, yeah, exactly. You know, bringing it, bring it to the spaces where the communities need it, I think is what theater is really about because it's about connection. Yeah. Yeah. We're missing the mark on that. I think. I think so too. And, you know, uh, Adaya and I did talk about the sort of pretentiousness of the concepts of theater Mm -hmm. and that it is connected to class and education Mm -hmm. and all of these things. And, and to, to really approach the work, like I really talk about storytelling now because it's not just playwriting or screenwriting or this or that or podcasting. Like it's all storytelling. Uh-huh. What, what platform you're on, of course, you, you have to consider that. But when it really comes down to it, story is a way for us to connect to one another and feel like we get each other just a little bit more, you know? Um, so to me, there's just so much logic to theater being moved into community spaces and that being where they, where it happens, 
you know, when we talk about immersive theater, but to me, it's like immersive is like, okay, well, let's go to the park and let's go see a play. But, you know, bringing theater into a community space, like a retirement community or, um, or a hospital, right. right? That is to me that, that is life-changing for sure. You know? Um, so I, I really love that idea. I'm excited for you. Yeah. It's <laughs> You're like, it's going to be a lot. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know how any of it's going to work, but I have to start. I love the word storytelling. It's my favorite word. I have to start with the story and then worry about it. Yeah. Um, then figure out the rest of it. Don't ever let like not knowing how to do the rest of it. Stop you. Mm-hmm. You got to tell the story first, get that in some form. And then the other pieces may not fall into place you know, without <laughs> effort. Right. Um, they may fall into place with great effort, um, which comes with a great satisfaction and reward exactly. at the end because of all the difficulty of getting there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but in some <laughs> ways that's more exciting at this stage of things than Exactly. Knowing, oh, I've written this play for this theater and we're going to work on development for two years. And then, you know, maybe by the third year, we'll get into the season. Oh, well, no, global pandemic. Oh, well, no, they're never going to do the play again. Or maybe they're going to find a slot for it in two more years. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, no, the board's changed. Oh, no, they've lost the artistic director, a completely new vision. Oh, no, the budget's been cut in half. Sure. Um, You know, they have their own struggles. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I can't fix all that. Yeah. And complaining about it also isn't really going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly isn't going to let me tell more stories. So find another route. Find another route. Yeah. And and your your piece, Pearl River Remains, started out as a novel, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I wrote a novel during the pandemic. I was like, fine, I'll become a novelist. It's just that easy. You just write a novel. <laughs> Well, wouldn't you know it, but no one was really interested in publishing my novel because no one knows who I am. Um, so I started reading that a number of first-time novelists had found success by um, self-producing a, a pod, or an audio book, essentially, okay. and then getting enough followers on social media that way that then an agent um, and then a publisher would be willing to take the risk. Mm-hmm. You know, we're reading fewer books now. I mean, they're always saying this or that medium is going to die, but books are suffering. Right. Theater's right. been dying for 2,000 right. years. Theater has been dying. It's been a long, <laughs> it's been a long death. death. <laughs> um, but it is, you know, it's expensive to publish a book and sure. um, they need to have a little assurance that someone's going to buy it. So I was like, great. But then the coolest thing happened in the process of like learning how to record all of that and getting to like read my own book and do all the voices and inhabit all these characters that I had written as an actor and then like sound engineer and edit it all. I didn't give a crap whether the book ever got made because now suddenly people in Finland and Israel and all over America and people who never have gotten to come to my place or friends or family I haven't seen in 25 years were able to listen to my book. Yeah. And, um, wild right it's been yeah it's been wild and it's not like it's like had some outrageous number of, i think it's been downloaded 1700 times i mean that's like all episodes so it's not like 1700 people have listened to the whole book right sure. it's just like number of individual downloads so nobody's gonna 
yeah, nobody's nobody's rushing over here from Hollywood or from Simon and Schuster to hand me a contract. Um, but those are people who I've been able to talk to. Mm-hmm. I've been able to tell a little bit of a story about the South and about strong, messy women um, that I wouldn't have gotten to do that any other way. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I would also say maybe just not yet. Sure. Not yet. And I mean, it, you know, once you create something like that and you put all that effort into the product, it is a product. It's like a thing. Yeah. And you can use it. Maybe it becomes a stepping stone or it exactly. becomes a calling card. Someone wants to know what else have you done? Oh, what is your portfolio? Well, my right. portfolio is. Sure. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. And I don't want to underestimate the, um, the potential yeah, power of that. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of why people need to be trying to produce some of their own work, right? Sure. Not just because of how much they can learn from doing it, but because it is a building of a portfolio. Yeah. And that is invaluable, right? And a stage piece, when it's over, it's over. That's it, yeah. But a podcast could potentially live forever. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, You know, it's there. It's there now. It's not going anywhere. So I would love to know how you imagine or how you hope new play development will evolve as we grow and evolve. Um, you know, what, what would you like to see? You know, there's, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things, big questions but... like, well, how, do we, how do we stay alive forever? Amber, how do we yeah. just solve the problem <laughs> of aging and death? Exactly. Um, it's just a time to do question. it right now. Right. Right. right I'm now. just going to, yeah, get mm-hmm. this easy button out. Take care of that. <laughs> um, I guess one thing it comes, comes back to audience. I mean, when you hear about audiences, not knowing that, a vast majority of like a theater that does a lot of contemporary work is doing plays by writers who are still alive. Like we just take this as wrote. We're still alive. I'm a writer. I'm here. I'm alive. I'm also a woman. Mm -hmm. I'm not a dead old white guy. Um, This is not common knowledge, even to people who are regular theater goers. Mm Mm-hmm. So they need, we need to do a better job of teaching them what's exciting about new work mm-hmm. and why they should feel like part of something when they come to see a world premiere and not scared that it's going to be terrible because it's never been tested. Well, movies aren't tested before either. The movie mm-hmm. just came out. Exactly. Um, and then maybe it feels like less of this giant leap mm-hmm. of faith to do new work. And the developmental process is not so long and we don't need so many frivolous comedies, you know, mm-hmm. to fill in the blank. People are writing the difficult work and that's getting lots of development and it's not getting produced because no audience is going to go watch that because it's too depressing. Um, this is also what I hear, you know, being on the inside of theaters mm-hmm. while they're choosing their seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the solution to making new work? Not a risk. Mm. Mm-hmm. I guess this is the common denominator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do keep coming back to it starts with who's in your seats. So with that, I would love to hear some of the new play references or inspirations that you would love to share with our listeners. I would say Sarah Wool taught me, you know, about the magic of theater while Annie Baker taught me the magic of the ordinary 
person. Mm. And I really like the way those two things fit together. Um, I've always been obsessed with who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, even though I'm not a huge Edward Albee fan, but something about the way he put that horrible woman on stage. Mm. Um, uh, I still find sort of mesmerizing and fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also really drawn to actors as writers. And um, I just read a play one of the theaters I was, I, I work for, um, we were looking at for the season um, by a woman named Charlene Woodard. And she's uh, also, she was in the world premiere as well. She's a, a black playwright actor. And then of course, did, I don't, I'm going to mispronounce her name. Denai Guerrera. Have I said that correctly? I believe that's correct. Denai but eclipsed, I believe. right? Yeah, I mean, eclipsed. she's clearly an, an actor, um, and really seasoned in terms of film and television. Um, but she's writing these, these risk-taking juicy meaty plays. As far as sort of broader inspiration, I'm really into, well, there's this documentary series I highly recommend on Showtime called Couples Therapy that I'm obsessed with. I just finished, (laughs) I finished the third season in like two days. Wow. Um, but they're real couples and it's the same therapist and they, it's not like one episode per couple. You follow them over the course of the season, like four or five different couples and they sort of cut them together. So you get little snippets of each and just the storytelling and the editing is really fantastic in terms of how they show us how these couples get from where they are at the beginning where like, Oh, this is hopeless to the end. And some, some of them are hopeless. Some of them aren't, though, and they make this miraculous, this, this arc is just incredible. Um, but then all, of course, these little ups and downs within each episode. And then the woman who's the therapist is this um, Israeli-American, and she's just incredibly focused and sort of mesmerizing um, and kind. Mm. This incredible listener. And I don't know, I just, I can't get enough of it. Love it. Um, and then on the web, uh, there's a you can follow him on Facebook and I, I guess maybe Instagram as well. And then see all the videos, but it's called soft white underbelly. And it's a documentary and called, um, his name is Mark. And I don't know how to pronounce it later L A I T A. And he interviews, he's based in California. So a lot of the people are in California. He interviews people on the fringes. Um, a lot of people live on skid row. They're homeless people, they're addicts, but then also he interviews he interviewed a guy who had, who, whose parachute didn't employ when he jumped out of an airplane, this kid. Oh, um, he interviews people who are sex addicts. He interviews people who um, are like you would look at them and think they were just a normal everyday person. And then there's this incredible story underneath. And he always starts with their childhood. And so you find out so much about like early traumas and then how that's influenced oh. who they are and how they are today. Um can I just comment that I feel like all of these things are observations of human condition. Yeah. And you are a playwright who writes humans and characters. And I mean, you just taught a class for us about writing people. Um, And I just want to comment that I'm hearing all of the things that you take in to be very much focused in on that. And that's really cool. People. They're so amazing. You look at a person and you think they don't have an entire 500 novels in them. 
then you are misunderstanding yeah. what humanity is. Even people you think are quote unquote basic. Exactly. This, this is a lesson basic. for myself too, right? So true. We can, all, we can all make snap judgments, but um, heck yeah, it's it's incredible when people show you the, their vulnerability too. And that's what, I mean, it's what I, one thing I love about playwriting. It allows me to show my vulnerability maybe <laughs> more than I'm comfortable as a person because I can do that through the characters, but also all the things, the layers that we put on ourselves to, to protect that, mm-hmm. that soft, that soft white underbelly. Love um, it. Look at you pulling that all together. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it is beautiful. It is a beautiful thing. Um, humanity is a beautiful thing. And I think the more we can appreciate that, I, I think if we can write always from a place of empathy and understanding, um, then we make the world better because audiences are not going to be able to help but leave that theater or take that earbud out and have a different viewpoint into someone's existence mm-hmm. and this realization that we are just not different. We yeah. just aren't. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I mean, I could be like one, you know, car accident away from being a crystal meth addict. It's like, it doesn't take, it takes very you little, hear, you know, with these incredible stories, people, and mm-hmm. you realize how, how no one needs to be up on a high horse. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking the other day how, I wish we could do a better job in the theater of telling stories from underneath rather than coming from above. Mm -hmm. Um, If we get on the sort of level of, of vulnerability and, and fallibility and the fact that we are all similar um, regardless of class, age, sex, race, all those things um, we would, that's, that's then where the people of all those different groups come to the theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, I belong here just yeah. like anybody else. Yeah. 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 We're all down here in the dirt together, just trying to survive. It's true. Yeah, it's true. That's beautiful. I love that. And I think we talk a lot about empathy in the theater, but you know, if we look at science, if we, if our heartbeats sink when we are in the same space together, watching a story, um, if, if our breath and our energy connects when we're doing that, then that is a sacred space. And that is a sacred moment, you know, and we're, we're having it together. And that is just, I mean, for me, when that happens and I really feel connected when I'm at a live event, the the hair on the back of my neck comes up and yeah, I have wild. this like excited feeling in my body and I, and it just, it's like electricity and it is just coming from all of the people around me. And, um, and I just love that, you know, because nobody can judge electricity, right? It just is what it is. It is. It's, it's just, just energy. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it, it's what drives me to create live anything, you know? I know. Cause it's so hard. It's so hard, it's so hard. but it's so Unlike anything else. Absolutely. Because you get to have the discovery as an actor in a moment Mm -hmm. and those people get to watch you experience it and discover it and they get to discover it too. And they may not realize it, but a lot of those discoveries are happening in that moment for those actors. And that's so exciting. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, I love it. I, I, and I'm so glad that I feel like for you, um, through the pandemic, 
it almost sounds like you found more ways to reach out and connect to other human beings that you may not have had before. I, I hope feel, we all have. Yeah. I feel a lot more tender. I don't oh, know. I feel yeah. a lot more like yeah. the vulnerability is much closer to the surface mm. now than it used to be. And of course we've all suffered loss and sure. And grieved over things, um, in that time. Um, and I'm sure that has something to do with it, but life didn't stop. Like someone the other day called it the big, the great pause mm -hmm. COVID. And I was like, but, but that wasn't, it, it was a pause. And I did refer to it as a pause earlier, I think. Mm -hmm. And it, it gave us an opportunity to sort of stop the rat race, stop the hamster on a wheel, yes. you know, go to work, come home, go to bed, get up, go to work, come home, go to bed. Um, but it wasn't a pause of life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of important things have happened in that time. Um, I feel that. Yeah. And I guess we've all changed in our, the way we feel connected to the world yeah. or disconnected, mm -hmm. um, which is such a worthy thing of bringing into the art now. Yeah. Otherwise, what was the point of all those deaths? Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that yes, exactly. But it doesn't have to be a story about COVID. No, please. God not. knows, I won't ever write maybe a play not. about COVID. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> it could be. It could. It could be about COVID, but not. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that. Um, so, what is your best advice for new play artists, mm. playwrights, actors? Yeah. Well, I have. I mean, I the thing I've already said, which is is just get involved in in life and human behavior and look for ways to observe it that speak to you. And there's lots and lots of ways. And if you're a really, really shy person, like I am, some of that, a lot of that will end up being um, documentary films and <laughs> strange uh, web series. Um, the soapbox that I get on whenever I'm asked this question has more to do with the business of getting produced, mm. which if you're a writer listening to this and you're like, I just want to get, I want to tell stories and I need them to be on stage in front of an audience. or I don't feel complete, mm. which I completely understand. Um, how do, how do you get produced research? Mm. It is your job to go to them and get to know them. And by them, I mean the theater, the institution, mm -hmm. the places you want to work, the places where you feel your work fits, the places you believe are going to get your work and the audiences who are going to get your work. It's your job to go find those places mm -hmm. and not to expect them to come to you just because you finished a play. Mm -hmm. And not every place is right for your play and not every place is going to do right by your play. I've had experiences that were very negative mm -hmm. because all I wanted was just to get that production. And exactly. I didn't do the work to make sure we fit together. Mm. So that was on me. Um, Go right back to the top of the interview and start with choose your collaborators. Well, wow. choose your collaborators. Yeah. Because it's not just the about the production. It's mm. about what, who's going to tell your story. Right. Well, and be yeah. intentional about where you're submitting, right? Yes. Like well, there's know just, where you're submitting and why. There's so much information out there about theaters and what they do. And you can look mm -hmm. at their whole archive of like, you yeah. know, season after season after season and see, does my play fit here? Mm -hmm. um, 
And then, then, you know, you do the work to sort of find creative ways to get in there. If they don't have a festival you can submit to, then maybe, you know, if it's in a town where you live, you volunteer to do other things, you get to know them doing other things. And that's how I've gotten a lot of my productions is because I already had a working relationship with them as a graphic designer. Exactly. And then I could pass a script. Or an actor. Um, right? or, or as an actor, right. and then I can pass a script. So, um, I mean, it's a lot harder if you have no relationship. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of ways to build relationships. A lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of these producers teach classes, you know, yes. offer engagement. Mm-hmm. You can volunteer with them. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many different ways to engage. Yeah. Um, and thinking about as a playwright, how you can be a part of your community. Right. And, um, hopefully not just spend all your time at home, but, uh, <laughs> and, and I see you out at the theater a lot. I mean, I, I remember before the pandemic, we would yes. go, we would go see plays by ourselves and often be sitting next to each other. Cause we would, we would both show up alone. <laughs> right. And so I think that's, that's one of the great things is once you start doing that, you always have someone to sit, sit with at the theater because there's always people like that. Yeah. You're always going to run. I always run into people now. Yes. You know? Um, so I never worry about going alone. Um, because you never know who you're going to get to sit next to. Right. Um, and who you're going to connect with that night. So I think, uh, it's so true. Like how can we engage with these producers beyond them providing a production for us? In what ways can we give back You're showing to them. that yeah. organization? You know, I have an interest. I'm getting to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it playwrights itself. And that, that happened just like that. But I had an experience working in a theater as an actor and I really got a very clear sense of the theater. And I said, I want to write a play this this theater, I think they would do a beautiful job with the kind of play that I'm thinking of writing next. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm going to, I'm going to tailor it. Exactly. Um, And it ended up there Mm -hmm. and they did do a beautiful job with it. Um, But I couldn't couldn't have done that without having Mm -hmm. that experience first, because I'm looking at it from the outside. Um, Which I got to say as a multi-hyphenate really speaks to the multi-hyphenate lifestyle actually being helpful to creatives. Yeah, for sure. Uh, When, when, you know, when I was coming up out of college, people would say you needed to focus and I never did uh, because that's not my vibe. Right. But, um, and I actually found that the more things that I experienced that were different, the better I became at everything. And the more I respected everyone in the room and their roles, you know? Oh gosh, isn't that true? I mean, we all think we can do, you know, everybody's job is so easy, right? We're, we're so quick to, mm-hmm. you know, criticize yeah. or have, you know, all this grief about the way that something's handled. And then if right. we try to do that job, we, we see what's involved. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody has it easy. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I mean, and we're all, we're all, there is a common goal, even when money, you know, we're just, we're trying to pay the bills and your money is involved. Mm-hmm. We're still trying to make good art. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's maybe a little bit of a silly play, you can say, well, the good art here is to entertain people and make them forget their worries for two hours. Exactly. And laughter is healing. Full heart. Yeah. That, that's all. That's our goal. Okay. Exactly. We're all united <laughs> to that common goal. Um, Love it. Yeah. It's hard. Why do we do this? Again? You know, <laughs> I, I, I keep life? going back. I just, I'm like, I have to, I, I don't, I have not, I, I do know. not get to choose, you I know, keep trying not it's, to care about telling stories and the stories keep not. coming. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's, 
I don't know. And it's, I I don't have the answer to that, but for me, there's nothing more exciting than story and building story and collaborating with other people and, um, getting to see just how incredible all the people are in this community that we get to work with, you know, um, it's really special, you know? So, um, where can listeners connect with you and keep up with your work? Um, I think you mentioned them probably the, the best places, um, in the little bio at the top, but yeah, I have a, I have a, a website, Daryl's plays. It has, um, all my work on it, or at least info about all my work as well. as Some of my acting, um, and then if you go to the new play exchange, I, I tend to put all my scripts on there, like the full script. So awesome. They're all ready to be downloaded. And, um, if you ever need any graphic design work, uh-huh. it's just, uh, com. I do graphic design for a theater almost exclusively. So, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently I just can't get enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It is my home. It yes. Is my home. It is. It is. It is home. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. And for those who are not familiar with the new play exchange, um, and our playwrights, look it up like right away. Oh yeah. It's, it's an cool. incredible platform for, for plays, playwrights, dramaturgs, producers to connect and to, um, get to see, see your work. And it's, uh, very affordable, very, very affordable. And you can read plays and you can leave your own reviews. Yeah. Just like for any play you want. Um, mm-hmm which is a, a way to support and lift up other writers as well. And lots mm-hmm. of times then they'll return the favor. So you can Love sort of scratch each other's backs and um, get some exposure out of it. Yeah. It's a great place to discover though. So much stuff on there. Yeah. It's amazing, right? It's a treasure trove. Yeah. Shout out to the new play exchange and the national new play network for creating it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. It's been so wonderful talking oh my to gosh, you. It was a pleasure. You're such a dear friend. Thank you. Love you, Amber. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. This podcast was brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you've heard today, support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and or consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. Table work.